Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast where you can stay current on the latest global research in the field of reproductive medicine. This podcast brings you an overview of this month's journal, in-depth discussion with authors, and other special features. FNS on Air is brought to you by Fertility and Sterility Family of Journals in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine and is hosted by Dr. Kurt Barnhart, Editor-in-Chief, Dr. Eve Feinberg, Editorial Editor, Dr. Micah Hill, Media Editor, and Dr. Pietro Bordaletto, Interactive Associate-in-Chief. Welcome to Fertility and Sterility on Air, the podcast from FNS. I'm Micah Hill, the media editor from FNS, and I'm glad to be back here with the whole team, Eve, Kurt, and Pietro. It is so good to see all three of you and to all be four of us together again for this. Welcome back. It's great to see you and happy summer, everyone. Hello, everyone. Great to see you. No one's happier than the listeners, Micah, to have your sweet, sweet tenor voice and deep, deep insights back on the podcast. Well, I have missed you guys, and I'm excited to once again be learning from you today. So we're going to dive right in because we have a very full slate uh, for the August edition of the journal. So we start off with acknowledging our reviewers of the year. And this year, four reviewers were selected, and they were uh, Wintano Lee and Brian Whitcomb. And both of those are methodologic editors, uh, but were also selected as reviewers of the year. Uh, uh, Preston Perry, who's an editorial board member, and the fourth uh, winner was Phil Romanski, um, who is a recent graduate, actually a classmate of our own uh, Pietro. So the four of them were selected as uh, the reviewers of the year. And I just want to read one quote by one of them. Preston is always uh, interesting and provoking in what he says. Uh, He says, peer review not only is personally educational, but inspires my whole team. Reviewing forces us to look not just at the latest insights, but also to identify classic articles through references that we may not have been familiar with. All practices need a monthly journal club to avoid stagnation, and peer review provides the fodder for these discussions. So I thought that was a nice approach from uh, Preston and how he thinks about it. But Kurt, I know we talk a lot about reviewers and uh, how important and vital the reviewers are to uh, the whole process of the journal. So do you want to make any comments about uh, these, these four awardees or the review process? Well, the, the four awardees were well-deserved. They, um, their quality and uh, their competence is outstanding. So thank you very much to those four individually. But I also want to say thank you to everybody. Peer review is the foundation of our scientific literature. And without it, the quality of our work would be just terrible. So I know it's a burden sometimes, but I find it enjoyable. And I really appreciate those that you take the time to roll up your sleeves read the articles before they're in press, and your comments are always insightful and always helpful. And again, thank you very much. And Kurt, I know we've talked about it, but in the last year, you uh, implemented a methodologic review for every single paper that gets published in FNS, and two of the four recipients of the Reviewer of the Year were from those uh, group of methods reviewers. So it seems that your editorial team appreciates the uh, assistance and reviews that these people are providing. Yeah, the methodological editors are... Um, one step beyond the the normal reviewer they look really at the methods of each paper they look to make sure that the paper is written in cloud in clear scientific terms everything is harmonized the data is correct they're they're outstanding reviewers with a, a great fund of knowledge and I, I can't thank them enough and i think because of them and particularly but because of the reviewers in general the quality of the science in the journal is a lot better so again thank you yeah, I couldn't agree with you uh, more. It's been, a, a, I think, a great implementation that you've done, and, and congr- kudos to that team for providing those reviews. 
so we also have a views and reviews section in the August journal, and this is from editorial editor Eric Widra, and he's looking at what is next for embryo selection. And so he recruited uh, three different articles. Uh, two of these three are actually full systematic reviews. So this really is a, a solid reviews this month, as opposed to just people's uh, opinion or views on a matter. The first one looks at morphokinetic analysis. Um, or time-lapsed imaging uh, specifically, and this is from Jimenez and his colleagues. And uh, they take a very positive uh, view of what we've learned um, from a scientific standpoint through time-lapse imaging and, and see the studies and the application of it generally is, is fairly positive. The second study was from Zhang and Borman at MGH, and they also look at time-lapse, but uh, they look more broadly at any type of non-invasive selection of embryos. So time-lapse, uh, spent media, those sorts of things. And they specifically in this systematic review also look at the role that AI may be playing in it. They take a more critical view of time-lapse, which I would agree with, and they essentially say it has limited role clinically at present, but that AI may be the key in helping us unlock that. We've learned a lot through time-lapse, but maybe the reason why the overall preponderance of the randomized studies haven't shown benefit is that we just haven't quite unlocked how to use that information yet. And then the third one is from Italian authors led by Sinaglu. And this one is a uh, looking at non-invasive PGT for aneuploidy, uh, such as in spit media. So overall, this is an excellent uh, series of reviews on different ways that we can assess embryos, uh, specifically outside of PGTA or static one-time analysis of embryo morphology. So definitely worth a read. Before we get on to the original article, there's still more to talk about. We have a lot of uh, front matter in the in the journal this month. So there's also a fertile battle. So we have a views and reviews and a fertile battle. The fertile battle is led by uh, Michael Eisenberg, one of our male reproductive urologists uh, on the editorial board of Fertility and Sterility. And this is looking at what do you do if your microtessy fails? You don't get any sperm on first microtessy. Do you do another? I didn't even know that this was really a topic that was up for debate in general, at least in our program. Typically, if we don't get sperm through uh, one attempt at the microtessy on both testicles, uh, we won't repeat it. But they ask a lot of interesting questions. When should you? What if you did the surgery the first time and it failed? What if someone else did the surgery the first time and you don't know how good it was? What if something has changed clinically? Uh, so it actually is a very interesting debate that I, as a female specialist, didn't know was a debate in the field. So uh, thank you for Michael to bringing that to my attention. And it's definitely worth a read for all of us who have ART practices. What makes no. FNS uh, unique to other journals is what Mike had just described. So please take the time, uh, although we don't review them um, in depth on this podcast, the views and reviews are just a wealth of information and the debates. They may teach you something, but if not, they, they're entertaining to say the least. So uh, please uh, look at this content other than just listening to the articles we're describing. Great. Thank you, Kurt. And then finally, before we get to our uh, seminal contribution for the month, we have an inkling. Uh, this is from uh, Rob Norman, another one of our editorial editors, and he is looking at the name of PCOS. And I think all of us would agree that PCOS is a horrible term. Um, it's better than, I guess, the eponym that preceded it. Stein, Stein. Oh, yeah. Stein. But, but, you know, Bob is um, very thoughtful. Robert's very thoughtful when he talks about how we think about language. I remember even a discussion with him not liking the term fertile battles because he doesn't think it should be a battle, but a discourse. And he goes into sort of the strengths and weaknesses of the terminology as it's currently used and actually talks about some efforts to rename PCOS. One, a uh, potential proposed name that seems to be gaining traction amongst patients is reproductive metabolic syndrome. 
or if people want to retain the acronym PCOS, polygenic cardiometabolic ovarian syndrome. So, you know, as someone who was training at the NIH as um, Larry Nelson was at the end of his career and sort of his big contribution uh, as he was studying ovarian failure was renaming ovarian failure to ovarian uh, insufficiency to be more accurate with the terminology. So a uh, very interesting inkling from Bob, who's always very thoughtful about the words that we use to define disease and to have these conversations. All right, so a lot of front matter in the journal, but now we are on to our original research. And Eve, you have our first paper, a seminal contribution this month. Tell us about it. Yeah, this is a good one. It, the title of this paper is Does Maternal Age Affect ART Success Rates After Euploid Embryo Transfer? And this is a systematic review and meta-analysis. It was written by Amerigo Vitalano with senior author Paula Vigano from Italy. And I'm going to give a shout out to Sarah Cromack and Mary Ellen Pavone for a really thoughtful reflections piece on this article. So the aim of this study was to investigate whether increasing maternal age may limit ART success independent of ploidy status. So in other words, the study seeks to answer the question of whether PGTA really is the great equalizer, i.e. are success rates the same for all patients who have a euploid embryo irrespective of age? And they tackle this question through a systematic review and meta-analysis. They included a total of seven observational and randomized control trials from 2014 to 2021 that addressed the effect of maternal age on both ongoing pregnancy rate and live birth rate in a total of just over 11,000 euploid embryo transfer cycles. So a lot of data to work with. The secondary analysis included implantation rate and miscarriage rate. Studies were included where PGTA was performed on a variety of platforms, including RTQPCR, ArrayCGH, and next-generation sequencing, and a little bit more on this later. Ongoing pregnancy rate or live birth rate after euploid embryo transfer, comparing women less than 35 versus women greater than 35 was the primary outcome. They also did paired comparisons of reproductive outcomes between different age groups, including but not limited to an analysis of patients less than 38 compared to patients greater than 38. They used a random effects model for their meta-analysis, which I think is the right model to use because over 8,000 cycles came from a single study. In addition to corroborate results from the meta-analysis, and I really liked this, the authors used SART data from 2014 to 2020 just to see whether or not they were on target. I personally didn't find the results of the study surprising, but I'm looking forward to hearing what the group thinks. In short, what they found was that there was a significantly higher ongoing pregnancy rate in women less than 35 compared to women greater than 35 with an odds ratio of 1.19 and a confidence interval that didn't cross one. The actual numbers are 59.1% compared to 56.1%, which admittedly sounds a little bit less impressive. They saw a similar benefit in women less than 35 comparing those to women who were 38 to 40, and sensitivity analyses were performed excluding certain data like day 3 PGT or studies that included double embryo transfer, and that didn't change the findings. When the others looked at the SART data, it followed the same stepwise decrease in, in age categories from 54.8% in women less than 35 to 46.2% in the oldest age group over 42. So overall, I think it's a very good study and very useful for counseling. 
And I think that those who don't believe the data will criticize the study and say it's flawed because not every PGT platform is the same. And these vary by differences in euploid rate as well as live birth rate, depending on the PGT lab and the company used. People probably will also argue that biopsy technique differs between embryologists, and in their lab, they don't see this. So Kurt, Micah, Pietro, let's uh, open this up for discussion. What did you think? Eve, I'm curious to hear your thoughts. What do you think is driving the difference? Why the the couple's single-digit percentage point difference in outcome? Do you think that's something to do with the underlying cause for the infertility? Is it something about added comorbidity as women are getting older that's changing the success with euploid embryo transfer? Yeah, I think a lot of it probably has to do with cellular machinery, things like mitochondria and that whole wealth of data that we're just starting to uncover as it regards to euploidy as part of the equation, but not the whole equation. Micah, what do you think? You're nodding. Well, no, I just think to Pietro's questions, one of the disadvantages of doing a meta-analysis like this is that you don't have that individual patient-level data to try to drill down on the confounder. So you, you can't unless you're doing it as an independent patient, uh, you know, an IDP meta-analysis. But I, I like how we've just framed this and that not that it's just a statistical finding, because I, I don't think any of us are surprised by that, but actually it's really small effect overall. I mean, if anything, I would take away these data as being encouraging. Yes, if you're older and have a euploid embryo, your chance of success is less, but you're still over 50% chance of live birth for those patients, which is very encouraging. And right, because my- if, yeah, if you look at it per cycle start, I mean, if you look at IVF success per cycle start in somebody who's over 42, it's dismal. It's less than 5%. And so if you can get to that holy grail of a euploid embryo, you're giving patients a very very good chance of success. Is it the same as somebody who's under 35? No, but is it much better? Absolutely. I, I think this is a matter of degree, right? Like what, how much, what aspects affect pregnancy rates the most? And I don't think we would disagree that that um, if an embryo is aneuploid, it probably has a lower chance of resulting in a pregnancy. But I don't think we can discount age. I don't think age is solely just percentage of embryos that are aneuploid. So while this surprised me a little bit, I thought the difference would be a little bit larger. It still does tell us that there is more to pregnancy rates than just euploidy. I think to to Micah's point about the the trio of articles in the VNR about embryo selection that Eric Woodrow had, I think probably the missing piece here is the stuff that we aren't measuring about embryos routinely, the metabolomics. You've mentioned the mitochondrial composition of these embryos as we get older. And Imagine some of the difference in euploid embryo across age groups is probably there. We just aren't measuring it and can't put a number on it. Think of it a different way. I mean, we all think that replacing the oocyte with a donor egg cycle all of a sudden magically fixes everything. And it clearly fixes pregnancy rates very well. But that woman who gets pregnant at 38, 42, 43 has a very different pregnancy than when she was at 35. So there there are aspects of a, a mother that age maybe not as fast as the egg or as dramatic as the egg, but but they clearly do. We can't say the only factor is, is genetics. Yeah, I think the uterus probably also factors in, although I have a tendency to ignore it. But the older you are, the more likely you are to have other pathology, previous C-section, fibroids, scar tissue, something that may in effect alter your likelihood of implantation. So I think it's probably not just one factor that decreases that likelihood, but several contributing factors. 
Yeah, it's fun that we can look at this both ways, that it, some of us agree that the, the effect was larger than we thought. Some of us think the effect was smaller than we thought. I mean, I, it's it, this is the fun part of looking at a paper like this. Um, I think everything we said was true. Age matters, but perhaps not as much as we suspected, but maybe not enough for us to care on our clinical daily basis. Well, but I think it matters when, it, when you go to Blastis' development rate, right? Like in our lab, we look at not just outcomes by euploid transfer, but we, we also look at cycle start. We look at blastocyst development rate by age. And we also see a stepwise linear decrease in blastocyst development rate by age with our under 35s having about a 55% blastocyst conversion rate and our over 42 having like a 25% blastocyst conversion rate. And I think that that's been described elsewhere too. One last question uh, for statistical education before we move on to the next one. Eve, you mentioned the random effects model and more than 80% of the subjects all came from one study in this meta-analysis. So just kind of explain to our fellows out there why random effects was the right model. Yeah. So for our learners, a fixed effect model assumes that all observed differences are due to sampling error. And for a random effects model, two different sources may contribute to the variance. And Micah, you are more of the meta-analysis king than I am but variance in each study and then variance that occurs between studies. And so I think most important is that in a random effects model, it gives greater weight to smaller studies. And so since 8,000 cycles of the 11,000 cycles came from one study, using that random effects to give strength to the smaller studies is the right answer. And later on, spoiler alert, we have another meta-analysis that uses a fixed effects model. <laughs> so we've got some good, good trainee education in here. I love it. Good answer. Just for our listeners, I, I didn't tell Eve that I was going to ask that question because I wasn't planning on asking her that question. But since she mentioned it, it was it was good learning. <laughs> All right. The other caveat you wanted to say is it, it's the random effects that gives you less power. So if the fixed effects is sometimes cheating, in other words, you, you're going to get a, a, a smaller p-value. So um, this was done appropriately and conservatively. Shout out to the methodologic reviewers at FNS. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so we're going to move on to uh, the assisted reproduction section of the journal. And Kurt, you are up. Kurt, what is, a, what is a trophoblastic spheroids, and how does that help us predict implantation? Thanks, Micah. This is a, a bit of a journey, and it, it's kind of fun to, to, to break up the podcast. Spoiler alert, you're not going to be using this in your clinical practice tomorrow. I'm glad it got into the journal because it, it, it makes us think a little bit. So the paper we're talking about is attachment of a trophoblastic spheroid onto endometrial epithelial cells predict cumulative live birth in women age 35 or older. That sounds quite bold and predictive, but really this is a, a very early study about a novel way of perhaps um, assessing endometrial receptivity. The premise of this paper is to basically start with endometrial receptivity as we know it is maybe not as predictive as we thought. And we've talked about this on this podcast a lot, and I'm sure our conversation would devolve into talking about it some more. But this was basically saying perhaps there's a better way or a different way uh, of assessing endometrial receptivity um, than ERA. And the thought is that you can do some of this in the laboratory that can take choriocarcinoma cells and they can derive a spheroid that can actually implant on endometrial epithelial cells. The idea is that these embryoid bodies mimic kind of the trophoblastic 
uh, attachment or the embryonic attachment of like the polar body or the polar implantation onto the endometrium, um, which they claim is more predictive than the inner cell mass or other aspects. So what they're really saying in the lab is we can mimic attachment of the endometrium. And they found that it, these embryoid bodies only implant in a receptive endometrium and not in the pre-receptive or post-receptive. So they have kind of a, a model, if you will, um, maybe not a genetic model, but, a, but something that you can actually look at. In order to make this a test, what they do is they take a woman's, they take a pipel to get the endometrial cells. And by the way, it's from a natural cycle on day seven after the LH surge. They use their culture material to make a field of, of the woman's endometrium. Uh, and then they take these pre-derived endometrial bodies and seed them if you will. And then they count how many are seeded on the endometrium. And then they can come up with a number that says this is a, a large amount of um, attachment where this is a low amount of attachment. To break character a little bit, this reminds me of the old tests when I grew up. I don't know if you guys were old enough about the hamster zona assay, but it's interesting. And, and we're going kind of backwards here, full circle, like back to the future, whatever analogy you want to use, that, that now we're taking, you know, chorocarcinoma endometrioids and, and planting them on, on a woman's cultured endometrial cells to predict whether that's better at predicting pregnancy rate than um, our other tests. Fascinating concept. It sounds like I should read about this historical test. <laughs> you should. <laughs> so anyway, getting back to this paper, this is all the preliminary work with the, with the number of reference articles, but now they, they took it as a test. So they took 240 women over about a five-year period in Hong Kong, and they underwent this endometrial biopsy in a fresh cycle, and then didn't tell the clinicians what the result was, and then they went through IVF. So it was basically standard IVF in Hong Kong. A lot of people had day three transfers, but many had blastocyst transfers. Clinically, then they were able to evaluate those that got pregnant and didn't, more correctly, those that had a high number of, the seeding took, had a high number of trophoblastic spheroid implantation, if you will, in the previous cycle, and then compared that to the cumulative pregnancy rates. The fun part of this paper is what I already described. The results are, are pretty non-impressive. They basically said that it works in people that are greater than 35, but not in less than 35, and it works in those that had a day three transfer, but not in a blastocyst transfer. With an area under the curve, depending on which analysis you're talking about, a 0.58 or 0.6. So, I mean, not really strong statistical predictive tests, but the humor in it, or the, the or the the reason to bring it up a podcast, is that it's really inventive of what they went through to to do this. It just just shows you that when one door closes, another opens, so to speak. You know, so perhaps our micro assessment of the endometrium with arrays. Um, didn't give us the answer we hoped for, but now we're going back macro with choriocarcinoma cells on making little spheroids and counting how many implant on a woman's endometrium. So hope you enjoyed the idea. I, I, it's, I enjoy that some of the stuff gets in the journal because it does make you think. It's not just tell me what to do. It's a good read. I mean, it, it brings you back historically to what people done in the past and what people theoretically be done in the future. But unfortunately, as I said, don't send your woman to Hong Kong to get this test to, to see whether her endometrium is receptive. The concept of it is really cool as a individualized pre-treatment predictor of success. I think that's, we can move beyond SARC cores data. We can move beyond clinic level data saying, if you are 35 and your diagnosis is PCOS, this is your chances of having a live birth. I mean, you can individualize it to a patient. That's super powerful. And it's a shame that this didn't do it. But I think the the concept of personalizing counseling and predicting treatment success is 
exactly what patients want. I think it's exactly what we want. We just still haven't found the thing that's going to do that the best yet. But like you said, Kurt, really excited to see this kind of stuff in the journal. It's, an, it's a nice change of pace from the systematic reviews that we sometimes publish. Mike, yeah. I need, do you also remember the postcoital test that we used to do as a I, I've done one of those. Uh, I've done one of those with Dr. Rosenwax, just one. <laughs> yeah, I remember that too. But um, no, I think it's a super cool paper. And I think that it just makes you wonder whether or not it's the same endometrium every month and different embryo and how much remodeling is there month to month within the endometrium. And can you take what you learn in one cycle and extrapolate that to another cycle? There's probably some sort of a trend there, but I'm not sure that we fully understand that just yet. When the ERA came out early, that's what I liked about it was that you were programming it to get the same endometrium cycle to cycle. And I thought that was a mild advantage. Now, there's a huge question there. Is your program cycle better than a woman's natural cycle, which we still haven't figured out? Um, but it, at least it took away the reproducibility of it. But you're right. In this particular paper, the reproducibility of a woman's menstrual cycle is an obvious bias to the study. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that it takes away the reproducibility of it. You have stem cells. And so you're really starting fresh every month when you're building up that endometrium. Like even though you're using the same protocol, you're using a whole different population of cells within the body. And so you are shedding those cells that you created the month before. And in having rapid mitoses and growth and proliferation of that endometrium, you're effectively remodeling it month to month. And so I, I really don't know that the same protocol that we use is going to give us the same outcome month over month. But those cells are presumably coming from the same bone marrow derived stem cells. The base population is the same every month, but I think you're right that they're being like recruited. Mitotic and... error, right? I mean, there's mitotic error and they're not, they're just not the same cells. I think there probably is a difference in cycles where you're supplementing progesterone and cycles where you're not in that stem cell population and how decidualization happens and the flavor of decidualization one month versus the next, for sure. We have such macro tools on assessing the endometrium, thickness, pattern. It's, it's really hard to know if we really see a dramatic difference on one program cycle to the next. I think there might be some, but we, I think we all agree that the reason we do it is because is it's kind of reproducible. I totally agree, but we're looking at it on a macro level. And so this looks at it on a micro level. It's a wonderful step forward in terms of how we think about things. We just need to think about them more. I was actually surprised that the AUC was 0.61 to me that because it was looking at a live birth and live birth is such a far downstream outcome from any of these pre-IVF tests. And there's so much that goes into it. I know we don't typically think of 0.6 as a very good test for an AUC, but if we're talking about live birth, it's hard to see many tests that get us above that. Good discussion, Kurt. Thank you. Pietro, we're moving on to your paper next, and we're going to be talking about causal inference and should we be flaring or antagonizing our poor responders? Let's get back to bread and butter ART articles this month, shall we? We've kind of, we've, we've had some pretty unique stuff so far, but we're going to be talking about protocols, 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 which to pick, when to switch, which to pick for specific patient groups. Finally, we have a little bit more data here to help us out, particularly in the unique scenario of pa poor responding patients. I just want to start off by polling the audience. Kurt, Eve, Micah, what's your go-to protocol when you have a patient who you're predicting to have a poor response? 
Do you ever start off with something other than an antagonist or is that kind of your go-to bread and butter first step? Go-to bread and butter first step. I'll use a flare on occasion as a primary protocol. How do you decide, Kurt? How bad I think the DOR is. I mean, how, how low the AMH is and, and how few the antropolicals is. I think that for me, the, the flare is my biggest gun. So if I want my biggest guns first to say I've tried everything, then I, I usually go to the flare first. I'm the same way. That's my default for poor prognosis patient, understanding that it probably doesn't matter from a live birth standpoint, but they maybe will feel happier about their estrogen levels and what we're seeing on ultrasound. I'm not convinced that it makes a difference, at least not in a way that we're able to measure it because it's, it's going to be a, a small percentage difference, hard to detect. Well, the cool thing is that you're both, all three of you are all right, and there's papers to support either of your assertions. There's some data that have suggested starting with an antagonist protocol, you get higher ongoing pregnancy rates compared with flare. And of course, there's other studies that have shown a higher number of mature oocytes and a lower cancellation rate when starting with the flare protocol in poor responding patients. But there's a lot of variability in some of these studies, and it probably comes from a couple of different directions. Most all of these studies are small, under 100 patients, maybe just not big enough of a sample size to find a difference if there is one. They're all retrospective. Can't really account well for physician bias and selection. Like Kurt said, his go-to is the flare for certain patients, whereas Eve says she always starts with the antagonist. Hard to tease that out from retrospective studies. There's actually just a lot of variability in what a poor response is. There's a recent meta-analysis that looked at 47 different randomized trials do you know how many different definitions of poor response they had, Micah? Uh, if 47 trials, I'm going to say 98 different. <laughs> they had 41 <laughs> different definitions. We can't of even course, agree yeah. what a poor response is. It's crazy. And then finally, the, the elephant in the room here, almost all of these studies are looking at second cycles after they've had a poor response already, not looking at that unique scenario of patients who you predict to have a poor response. To help overcome some of these challenges, the really smart folks at A-Life, and again, I think probably just worth mentioning a disclosure here, I am on their scientific advisory board, but was not involved with this study. The folks at A-Life decided to use causal inference techniques, and in this case, it was propensity score matching, and looked at SART cores data to help overcome some of these variability issues that we've identified in these studies and get us a little bit closer to the truth. And specifically, what they wanted to look at is which protocol is best for first cycle in patients with a predicted poor response, defined as an AMH of less than 0.5. And then took it to the next step is, which protocol is best in their second cycle once they have a proven poor response, defined as less than four eggs retrieved in their first cycle. In total, they had over 5,000 flare cycles, over 14,000 antagonist cycles available in patients with an AMH less than 0.5. Their primary outcomes are the things you wanna know, the pa things patients ask, number of oocytes, 2PN rate, number of blasts per cycle, and obviously the cumulative live birth rate per retrieval. They utilized propensity score matching, and they matched on the important things, age, AMH, D3 FSH levels, BMI, and so forth. And in their second cycle, they changed that propensity score matching to also include variables that came out of the first treatment cycle, total FSH dose, the length of the cycle, the number of eggs retrieved in the first cycle, um, and reasons for cancellation if there were any in the first cycle. Let me jump to the results here because it's, I think, exactly what my gut thought. Uh, and it's nice when the data corroborates what your gut thinks. They found that in patients with a predicted poor response, they had similar outcomes, either with starting with an antagonist or a flare protocol. This is before they actually had a definition of poor response, but people you, who you had a gut feeling, this isn't going to go well, they're going to get less than four eggs. 
This study suggests that you could start either with an antagonist or a flare protocol. You're not going to get a difference. Now, what about second cycles when you now have some more new dynamic information about how the first cycle went? Again, and I hate to burst people's bubbles, there was no difference. Starting with an antagonist and sticking with an antagonist, starting with a flare and sticking with the flare or making the switch in either direction, you did not get them more eggs. You did not get them more blasts. You did not change their cumulative live birth rate. Now, I think we have to acknowledge here, there's probably some confounding when patients need a second cycle. It probably means that there are suboptimal outcomes in their first cycle. So there may be some regression to the mean here. Kurt, what do you think? Yeah, it's really hard to study something like this um, without having, you know, potentially something like a crossover trial or something where it's randomized. Of course, there's going to be regression to the mean. Kurt, you've done work like this that tries to sidestep the need of putting together a really expensive, complicated RCT and using large retrospective data to do some causal inference. What do you think of this as a research technique to answer questions like this, where it's just not practical to put together an RCT? I really like the idea. I think there's. I think we underutilize um, some really sophisticated analytic techniques to isolate a question when you have enough data. The problem is you can't use all the data because, as, as Micah mentioned, there's confounding and there's there's outliers in the data. But if you can find like to like with the help of a computer and the help with causal inference, and as my colleagues at Penn say, what you're looking for is something called the counterfactual. In other words, you, you try to prove the, the counter, um, and that might help you prove what you're actually trying to prove. But there is some um, validity to this. Now, when we get it to the podcast like this, do you believe it <laughs> is another question, but, uh, but I, I think it's underutilized. I think some of the stuff that you miss in articles like this that you start data is you don't have some of the, the things that we think help in poor responding patients, the, the concept of oral contraceptive priming, estrogen priming, the indication for cycle cancellation in the first time. There's kind of some nuance that's missing that kind of may inform the decision to start with one protocol or make the switch to a different protocol. But I think this is pretty darn good data when you're looking at over 20,000 cycles to help kind of inform this this question that we have, that patients have. Does the protocol matter at all? And does switching protocols for a second attempt make any meaningful difference? And this data would suggest no. Pick the protocol that the patient's going to be able to afford, best stick with, and expect a similar but not different response in a second cycle. Right. I like it. I thought it was very good. And I love the way that they looked at antagonist to antagonist and antagonist to flare, flare to flare, flare to antagonist, and really said, like, it doesn't matter. I think the question that this article doesn't answer is what about those patients who don't return for a second cycle? They do very poorly on their first cycle. They're not coming back for a second. What protocol was used more often in those patients? And maybe that's a future question to answer looking at data, but is there a best first protocol if all you can do is one cycle? This paper doesn't answer that question. Could you look at the exact same data and just answer Eve's question of first cycle only? Use it or lose it. You got one cycle's worth of money to spend. What's the best first protocol in patients with a predicted poor response? I think that's a question that this paper doesn't answer, but probably worth answering. Eve, let's talk. I think we should do it. So the, the only thing that I think we missed in this conversation was the uh, placebo effects or the art of medicine in choosing your next protocol. Because I, I think all of us would say, if you got a poor response in the first protocol, you're often changing something for the sake of changing something because it just makes you feel better and more confident going in. But at least this is saying you by making that change, you're not hurting anybody. Maybe you are just giving uh, false expectations. 
Yeah, and this was in line. There was an earlier paper that was published by Eduardo, Eduardo. Harrington. Yeah, yeah, Eduardo Harrington out of UCSF that basically said the exact same thing. They looked at what happens if you were to change protocols. Are you seeing a different or a better response? And the answer was also no. But I agree, I still change protocol and I have often had patients in times where I haven't changed protocols, patients really push back or they will seek a second opinion. And the one thing that is always commonly said in that second opinion is like, oh, I can't believe that they didn't change protocols. It feels like the right thing to do, but it's really not supported by the data. Yet, I would argue I do it and we probably all do it because it feels better And to your point that large data may not be able to understand the nuances in an individual patient, you know, specifically for those patients that may prematurely recruit a follicle or have, I'm going to quote Christina Boots here, she calls it the runaway bunny. When you have the one follicle that escapes all of the others, maybe that's a patient where estrogen priming might help in that situation. I think the challenge of big data is you can't get to those nuances. But I do think that the overall big point of this is really important, and it's a really well-done study. I had a patient tell me that going anti-scientific, that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing again and expecting a different result. So why would I use the same protocol again? My counter to that is we are recruiting a group of different eggs (laughs) where we are putting in a different embryo. When we use an estrogen protocol or a natural cycle protocol, the big answer to that is it's a different cohort of eggs and a different embryo that we're putting in. And even deeper reproduction just obviously doesn't work that way. Otherwise, we would tell everyone after a month of sex that doesn't get pregnant to come in for something different because it didn't work and we don't want to be insane and try again next month. Good discussion. I, th- I have a feeling this is going to be a very highly read article because it's a it's a discussion everybody's interested in. And congratulations to these authors on a really cool statistical approach to this. Eve, we're moving on to the early pregnancy section of the journal in Europe uh, on a study looking at dietary patterns and miscarriage risk. Yeah, this was also really interesting. It was a huge undertaking by the authors who I commend for this piece. The title is The Association Between Dietary Patterns and Risk of Miscarriage, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis by Yalen Chung with senior author Adam Duvall from the UK. This was the Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis on the Association Between Diet and Miscarriage Risk, looking at preconception, periconception, and during the index pregnancy. They used 20 observational studies in the Systematic Review, and of these, six were included in the meta-analysis. They used a fixed effects model, as I alluded to before, to estimate the summary effect, odds ratio, and confidence interval. And the quality of included studies was evaluated using a modified Newcastle-Ottawa scale. So all the right tools. The search strategy was not limited to English, and this is really interesting. So they included studies that were done on five continents and included close to 64,000 women over a 22-year period. Dietary data were grouped a priori and a posteriori, which was a new term for me, according to food categories. And this categorization was done based on the Eat Well Guide produced by Public Health England. A priori grouping was prior to the knowledge of the outcome. And then a posteriori is knowing the outcome, miscarriage, and then working backwards from there to derive the eating patterns that may be associated with that outcome. 
Data were analyzed both by adherence to specific whole diet, like the Mediterranean diet, and food groups. And then subgroup analyses were performed looking at national income status to classify each study as low-middle or high-income countries because, as we all know, nutrition is going to be influenced by those factors. Dietary exposures were assessed by a food frequency questionnaire or multiple 24-hour recalls, but were somewhat inconsistent across studies. Food group studies were fruit, vegetables, fruit and vegetables, meat, red meat, white meat, seafood, dairy, eggs, cereal, flesh grains, fat and oil, and sugar substitutes. In a nutshell, pun sort of intended, here's what they found. Primary analysis suggested that a reduction in miscarriage odds with a high intake of fruit, vegetables, seafood, dairy, eggs, and cereals. So interesting, healthier foods may reduce the likelihood of miscarriage. The evidence was uncertain for meat, red meat, white meat, fat and oil, and sugar substitutes. Evidence was conflicting for refined sugar and soft drinks. And a preference for for fried food, and I liked this, lower chocolate intake may be associated with higher miscarriage odds. Adherence to the Nordic food groups, a better quality diet with healthy foods, antioxidant-rich food sources, and balanced diets were associated with a reduction in miscarriage odds. And then a whole diet containing healthy foods as perceived by the included subjects or with a high dietary antioxidant score may be associated with a reduction in miscarriage, while a diet rich in processed foods was actually associated with an increased miscarriage risk. So I think overall, sound advice and very digestible to share with patients who are wanting to do everything to help outcomes. And I know we've reviewed a lot of studies on this podcast that have looked at the 60 days before ART, and these data are much more holistic in that. I think it was a huge undertaking. Obviously, it's not without flaws, as some of the strengths, diversity in language, continents, socioeconomics, can also be construed as weaknesses in that not everything could fit neatly into boxes and categories. But I thought it was a really impressive piece of work that gives us some good counseling and I think is very congruent with what makes sense in terms of perhaps following more of a Mediterranean type diet and healthier foods and avoiding processed foods and eat more chocolate, of course. <laughs> here, here. I don't know what the message is when you, when, I mean, this is a fabulous study with a ton of information. I still don't know what the take home message is because it's just so hard to sift through all this material and, and all the confounding and, and everything. I think the take home message is probably very consistent with what the ADA says, like eat a well-balanced diet, there may be an impact of your diet on your pregnancy and miscarriage risk. Really try to eat a lot of vegetables, dairy, eggs, and whole grains. And I think that's really sensible advice. And I think you can say, look, the jury's not out on meat. We don't really know about sugar substitutes, but those leafy greens and lots of vegetables, I don't see any harm in giving that good advice. When they're reading this paper, the patients, are they, are they trying to find what not to eat or are they trying to find what to eat? That's a great question. And I don't think it tells you what not to eat. The evidence was mixed for things like meat, red meat, white meat, and sugar substitute. There's no take-home point on that other than to say it wasn't associated with a reduced risk, but the data are not solid. So if a patient were to ask me, like, should I cut out red meat? 
The best that I could say is there just aren't data to support that. And remember, this study is not telling you what a dramatic change in your diet will do three months before you try to get pregnant. It's sometimes read the wrong way. Agree. All right. Thank you, Eve. So we have one more original science article we're going to discuss. We're going to the reproductive science section. Pietro, you're going to talk to us about follicular genesis. We've covered tons of ground on this month's podcast. We're going to wrap up with just some really heavy hitting science. And you don't often see really niche basic science papers in FNS. But when you do, you know it's going to be thought provoking and interesting. And this one was really cool. This paper is by first author Ronald Peake and senior author Mary Madeline Dolmans. And they looked at a very unique POI patient population, those with mosaic Turner syndrome, specifically those who have undergone ovarian tissue cryopreservation. So we've doubled down from niche to very niche. There's unfortunately no data on whether the frozen ovarian tissue from these patients has any meaningful reproductive potential, specifically as it relates to levels of X chromosome aneuploidy. A few cases have demonstrated that 90% of the eggs from this ovarian tissue had normal X chromosomal content, but the granulosa cells and the theca cells that are also retrieved and then eventually transplanted were practically all 45X containing cells. Now, you may be thinking, who cares about the aneuploidy in the granulosa cells? Well, what if these granulosa and stroma cells impair normal follicular genesis and disrupt follicular growth? Well, then X chromosome aneuploidy may be pretty important in the cell population. To look at this, as well as kind of just overall reproductive potential of these tissues, these authors did something pretty cool. They looked at 18 patients with mosaic Turner syndrome who had undergone ovarian tissue cryo and compared them to 13 aged match controls ranging from 5 to 18 years of age, about half of them being prepubertal who had also undergone ovarian tissue cryo. This was all tissue that was frozen via the slow freezing method and then thawed, but here's a cool part, xenotransplanted into immunodeficient mice for the sole purpose of stimulating the grafted tissue and then retrieving the tissue for study. Science in the name of science. How darn cool. So what did they find? Well, the first finding I think is kind of the, we knew this already, the mean follicle density in patients with Turner syndrome before grafting is lower than age-matched controls. This is not new. We knew this. This is why we're so proactive about fertility preservation in this age group. But of the follicles they did have, almost a third of them had an abnormal morphologic appearance. And this is specifically in the Turner's patients compared to the controls. This abnormal morphologic appearance suggests that only part of the already reduced pool of follicles in Turner mosaic patients may have a meaningful reproductive potential at restoring future fertility after ovarian tissue transplantation. But interestingly, this high percentage of morphologically abnormal appearing follicles returned to normal after xenotransplantation, after the grafting. And the authors postulated that this, these aberrant follicles are probably preferentially lost from the tissue during grafting, during kind of that major massive follicular loss that happens in patients who undergo ovarian tissue transplant. Um, so maybe they were bad to begin with. You were able to clear them during the act of transplanting them. Now, the other important finding here is that 97% of the small follicles that they saw in patients with Turner syndrome contain an oocyte with a normal X chromosome. However, 78% of the granulosa and stromal cells contain an abnormal number of X chromosomes. This elevated levels of X chromosome aneuploidy in ovarian stromal cells and granulosa cells in the majority of follicles from patients, we think, is probably impairing the process of folliculogenesis. 
Now, the cool part is after they did the xenografting, the transplantation, you actually saw a decrease in the amount of aneuploidy in the granulosa cells surrounding the secondary and antral follicles compared to before grafting. And there's probably two reasons for this as well. Probably some degree of preferential recruitment of small follicles that had a normal X complement in their granulosa cells. And then probably some degree of preferential expansion of the 46XX cells in the granulosa cell layer during folliculogenesis. So again, the body is wanting to push forward cells that have a normal number of X chromosomes to support normal follicular growth and wants to get rid of the ones that are abnormal. So this kind of correction that you're seeing after transplantation is pretty cool. So finally, one last marker that they looked at was follicular expression of AMH. The amount of AMH positive granulosa cells was similar between both Turner mosaic patients and controls who were prepubertal. But interestingly, the amount of AMH expression rises dramatically in controls with transition to puberty, but stay very low in those with Turner syndrome, suggesting that there's ongoing impaired AMH secretion by their granulosa cells. Of course, AMH is a potent regulator of dormancy of the follicular pool, but here's the cool thing that they saw. Again, after grafting, and this is at the five-month period after grafting, the amount of AMH expression rose dramatically in Turner's patients and reached levels similar to their age match controls. So there's something that's happening when you're taking this tissue that was frozen, putting it back, and in this case, a immunodeficient mice, that the body is trying to get rid of the abnormal appearing follicles trying to preferentially grow granulosa and stroma cells that have a normal number of X chromosomes. And by nature of doing those things, you're seeing AMH levels kind of catching up to what they would look like in age match controls. So in summary, what this paper tells us is that, yes, Turner syndrome patients have fewer follicles in their ovarian tissue compared to age match controls. But now this data suggests that they're able to reinitiate folliculogenesis after xenografting. You're able to get follicles to that secondary and antral stage. And we also have some new data to suggest what's happening to those granulosa stromal cells and AMH production after going through these steps of xenografting. Really cool science for science's sake, but like Kurt said, you're not going to be changing your practice tomorrow based on this data. Eve, Micah, Kurt, do we need more studies like this where people are actually doing some of the heavy-hitting basic science? How do we translate this into other groups of patients? How do we use this for counseling for Turner's mosaic patients who are just a, a rare population at baseline? What's the purpose of accepting an article like this into fertility and sterility curve? Well, one, it's good science. And um, I mean, you have to work out the science in this because we're still learning about folliculogenesis and everything that goes around with it. Fertility and sterility is the premier reproductive science journal, not just the premier, you know, what do I do with my patients tomorrow journal. I appreciate the good science that it was, but you have to work this out. The basic biology is not all known when it comes to this area. Yeah, I can't help but wonder how much of the actual physical manipulation of the ovarian cortex contributed to some of the activation that was seen. And so I think it is similar to some other studies that have looked at ovarian activation in patients who have diminished ovarian reserve. You know, the other thing that I thought was a little bit confusing in this was they had some patients who were prepubertal, they had some who were peripubertal. And as I've seen in my clinical practice, and we have a longitudinal IRB to follow patients who have Turner syndrome who seek fertility preservation, there's a very wide variation in what those AMH levels are when they present. I've had some Turner mosaics who present with AMH levels of five and six uh, at age 19, and some who present with AMH levels of 
0.8. And I'm seeing somebody back today that I froze eggs on 10 years ago who initially had an AMH of 0.9 and she's now 29 years old. So I think there is huge variance, but I think it's a fantastic paper and it's a wonderful idea because we can't freeze eggs on everyone. And especially those prepubertal patients, it would be absolutely fantastic to have something to offer those parents. And I think especially as Turner's is being diagnosed much more antenatally on non-invasive pre-implantation screening, that we're now getting these diagnoses at a much earlier age than previously, allowing for intervention at a much earlier age as well. So I really commend the authors. I think it's fantastic. It is ready for prime time in that they're doing it, but we don't have data yet on the transplantation and on the outcomes in those patients. And I think the whole other question that needs to be asked is even in those patients that have normal aortic roots without dilation, are they safe to carry a pregnancy? So many, many unanswered questions, but I think fantastic science. And I was thrilled to read this article. Great discussion. Pietro, thank you for tackling that and making it uh, clinically digestible. Very good study. Uh, We're going to be using this for our NIH Journal Club in August. So if you're looking for a good science article for your journal club, for your fellowship, this is a highly recommended choice. So the last thing I'm going to talk about is a uh, letter to the editor, because they're always interesting, sometimes because they're scandalous or confrontational, but sometimes because there's really good discourse and, and good stuff comes out of the conversation. And it's the it's the latter for sure with this one. Uh, so this is endometriosis and pregnancy loss, the importance of mitigating bias. And this was from three uh, scientists in Brazil who were replying to a uh, Northern European cohort study that came out earlier this year in FNS that essentially showed that endometriosis was associated with an increased risk of miscarriage. And these authors in reading this paper said, well, is that the case or is it maybe that there's some confounding bias that was missed? And they noted that the patients who had endometriosis were much more likely to get pregnant via IVF or fertility treatments. And so maybe that's a confounder. And then they said, if there is an association, then should there be sort of a dose effect, meaning that uh, the more prior losses, pregnancy losses a patient has had, the more likely they are to have endometriosis. And so the original authors read the letter and came back with uh, a reply and did the analyses that the letters asked for. And essentially, uh, when they remove out patients that got pregnant via IVF, the, the results still held. Kurt, I'm, I am glad that you have brought back the letters to the editors. Uh, they're, they're always interesting reads. And uh, in this case, we, we learned more and got some good clarification. Uh, as always, we're only talking about a small percentage of what's in the journal. There's a lot of good basic science and uh, basic original research that we didn't talk about that's in there. There are two research letters, so I encourage you to read those. There's a good video article. Uh, and so lots of strong content in the August edition of FNS. Thank thank you all, and thank you to our listeners. Keep up the support. It was great to see everyone. Until next time. This concludes our episode of Fertility and Sterility on Air, brought to you by Fertility and Sterility in conjunction with the American Society for Reproductive Medicine. This episode was produced by Dr. Michael Simone and Dr. Molly Cornfield. This podcast was developed by Fertility and Sterility and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine as an educational resource and service to its members and other practicing clinicians. While the podcast reflects the views of the authors and the hosts, it is not intended to be the only approved standard of practice or to direct an exclusive course of treatment. 
The opinions expressed are those of the discussants and do not reflect fertility and sterility or the American Society for Reproductive Medicine.